what we're seeing on social media is generally people's perfected highlight reels. And where the toxicity comes in is that we are comparing our whole lives that are messy, that have these ups and downs and drags to someone's perfected highlight reel. And so I don't mind me, I'll look at your thing, I'll be like, oh, okay, that's what the flex. I don't mind that you flex because here's also, I know that you're human and I know that you have a whole multitude of experiences that I don't know, right? And so, and I'm not gonna get caught up in comparing my messiness to your flex. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, journeyers, if you're looking for some business and career advice, consider listening to Fixable, a new podcast from the TED Audio Collective. It's hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris. On Fixable, Ann and Frances talk to real listeners and give them honest, actionable advice on how to quickly solve their most pressing workplace issues. Everything from making ethical choices to explaining an employment gap. No problem is too big or too small. Find Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. If you want the episode show notes for this episode, go to journeytolaunch.com or click the description of wherever you're listening to this episode. In the show notes, you'll get the transcribed version of the conversation, the links that we mentioned, and so much more. Also, whether you are an OG journeyer or brand new to the podcast, I've created a free jumpstart guide to help you on your financial freedom journey. It includes the top episodes to listen to, stages to go through to reach financial freedom, resources, and so much more. You can go to journeytolaunch.com slash jumpstart to get your guide right now. Okay, let's hop into the episode. Hey, journeyers, welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast, or welcome back if you are a returning listener. I have on today the podcast, Isa Watson. Let me tell you about Isa. So I basically found Isa on Instagram because I believe we do have the same book agent. And I saw that he posted that Isa, your book was coming out. And saying all this before I get into your bio, because I always love kind of how I serendipitously like find people for the podcast without even trying. And I saw you had a book coming out. We'll talk more about that and all the amazing work you've done as an entrepreneur. And I was like, let me just research some more. And so I reached out to get you on the podcast. And just to give you a little background, everyone uh, listening, Isa is the founder and CEO of Squad, a new social frontier and an app that makes it fun and easy to talk with your friends away from social media. So that was one of the first things that drew me to you, Isa, is your amazing app and company. She's also a competitive skydiver. That was the second thing. I was like, wow, like competitive skydiver and author. So the book, um, your recent book is called Life Beyond Likes, Logging Off Your Screen and Into Your Life. And your debut book, you raise awareness around social media and how it's impacted our daily lives, self-worth, and real life relationships. You have an incredible background and I can't wait to get into it, but welcome to the podcast, Isa. Thank you for having me. One of the things that drew me in as I started to learn more about you and your story was that you grew up in a Caribbean household with, is it five other siblings? So you have six all together, yeah? It's six all together. My parents were busy. 
Yes. And so uh, I related to that. I mean, I grew up, my, I'm Jamaican. And uh, one of the things that you talk about a lot is just the influence that your parents had on you, especially your father growing up. And I want to learn more about like how his influences and what he did and your mom too, obviously, how that shaped you and like guided you as you grew up, especially with five other siblings. Because I can't even imagine. Yeah, it was, it was a lot to say the least. Um, but, you know, I think my parents, they were very big on academic achievement and academics they saw as a way to kind of unlock potential for earnings, unlock potential for having a happy life, unlock potential for having a good life. So it was always like when I was five, my mom was like, okay, Isaiah, for grad school, are you going to Harvard or MIT? She, you know, it. I was like, what about is there something before that? Like, you know, <laughs> but they had made up my, their mind. Like I was going to have an HBCU undergrad and an Ivy League graduate school education. And, you know, my dad, as this old school immigrant engineer, his philosophy in life was, you know, if you can't build it, you shouldn't be using it. So back in the Comp USA Circuit City days, he would always take me to buy the parts of a computer and I would build computers with him, um, you know, and that just, I loved building. You know, it's funny one of the things I would say about, you know, being in a big family is that there's a lot of personalities, but, you know, the one constant was the values that my parents instilled in us. And specifically outside of the hard work, my parents were always adamant about being kind to everybody, no matter who they were. They were always adamant about, you know, working hard and committing to anything that you do. It's not just academics. If I say I'm going to do this church fundraiser, I need to put my all into it, right? Um, we lived like right, we lived in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. It was right outside the city line though, but still Chapel Hill is weird. So we had to take our trash to the dump every weekend. And I remember my dad would always bring the dump attendant Burger King. And it was always something that just really stuck with me. And so, you know, I think my upbringing was one that was obviously very rooted in academic, like, <laughs> you, you got to get your stuff done. I skipped two grades. I was five grades ahead of math at some point. I got my first job at 14 years old in the research labs at UNC Chapel Hill in an organic chemistry lab doing, you know, chemistry research at 14. Um, and, you know, but I think that was like very much the foundation to everything that I did beyond that. So it was like that, that combination of, of you, you work super hard. You know, my dad used to wake me up at five o'clock every single morning to work to study. And I said, well, dad, I don't have an exam. And he was like, oh, so you think you only need to be prepared in life when you have an exam? And I was like, okay, you need to stop. Like, you know, or. Every every math textbook I was doing, I was going to have for that fall, my dad would go to the school, rent the textbook from my teacher or check it out from my teacher and make me do all the math problems the summer before. And I was like, dad, like I can just do the problems when other people are doing the problems in the fall, like everyone else. And he was like, no, the class is for review. And so it was very much academics, values. That was the foundation. And that that was a threat through all the siblings. Wow. So, okay. Now as a mom myself, so now this is just me asking a mom question because my kids are pretty young and we're definitely not as like disciplined with them in terms of some of the things you just talked about. And, you know, I often wonder like, should I be more of that? And looking back at your childhood, would you say that you were happy? Would you have changed anything or wanted your dad, like knowing what you know now? Because as kids, you know, we don't understand sometimes why our parents are doing certain things. And then maybe we're upset or we're just like, this is pointless. But when you look at now where you are, and I know it's kind of hard to like have that kind of hindsight because you are who you are because of that. 
But if you had a choice in the way you were raised, you'd want more balance or do you feel like this was necessary for you to to be raised this way? It's really hard to really make that hindsight assessment. But what I will say is that I would probably, there were a lot of things that I took that were great. I would have probably added on a splash of empathy. So, you, you know, what I mean when I say that is that, you know, the first way that I learned to express emotions was through the piano. You know, Chopin felt like my best friend. You know, Beethoven felt like my best friend. I wasn't really a social kid like that. I didn't speak that much when I didn't necessarily need to. I had opinions. I was like very like, you know, strong willed, but I wasn't this like social butterfly from a personality perspective, but from just like a emotional perspective, you know, I think my parents are exceptional people and I think that they did the best that they could with what they had. I think that what they were, you know, optimizing for was making sure that they had kids that could grow up and succeed in America. I mean, it's it's a little bit of a different thing over here, you know, when you're talking about what makes Black people successful, what are the tools that equips Black people to do well and to stand out. So I remember one time I was in high school and I was probably 13 years old and I asked my parents, I was like, you know, I, I found out that my friends were like, my I went to a very white school. So I found out that like my white friends were seeing therapists. I was like, whoa, this sounds kind of clutch. And I remember going home and being like, oh, mom and dad, like, you know, I talked to, you know, Bobby and Susie and Lori and like, honestly, I really would love to see a therapist to just kind of talk through some things. And they were like, you don't need therapy. You need Sunday school. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, again, I think that's a very common experience from a lot of black millennials. When they had old school parents that didn't probably believe in that. Right. Exactly. I would probably, I, I probably wouldn't change much. I would say I was overall like happy kid, but probably just a splash of empathy. Um, I think my parents wanted to make sure I was tough. Yeah. I mean, so when I, you know, so you studied, you, you, I think you just said you were doing like chemistry assistant work at like 14 and you studied chemistry at Hampton. Um, then you got your MBA from MIT Sloan. Uh, you worked at Pfizer and then ultimately you ended up at JP Morgan Chase, right? Working. Yeah. I did my master's in biochem from Cornell and in between there too. Right. Okay. So right. Like another important part of your educational career journey Obviously, I'm sure that that was really important and a value for you at the time. I want you to talk a little bit about your transition from that world. So like the educational IT kind of background, like first, maybe we should talk about what you did as your last uh, career, like at JP Morgan. And then I want to talk a little bit more about you transitioning out of that into what you do now and what that looked like. Yeah, so I was a research chemist you know, that was my my background. And just quickly to give uh, listeners context, what I did is I, you know, especially as an organic researcher, I was actually really focused on, you know, better um, improved ways to synthesize new molecules that needed to be studied for, you know, cancer implications, for really big disease implications. I was a diabetes chemist at Pfizer. Um, I really loved, you know, building something from nothing, which is why I loved chemistry. But, you know, I think that it also was a little bit lonely in the sense that anything that I would touch, anything that I would do would never really get into a human or touch a human for at least 15, 20 years. Um, so that was that catalyzed my transition to business school at MIT, which ended up with me falling into my role at JP Morgan. And JP Morgan was very interesting. My I remember talking through um, 
talking through this with my parents, you know, I, especially my dad, I call every big decision. I like the first person I would call was my dad. Um, and we would talk through it and, and, and they were like, yeah, try it out, you know? Um, and so I accidentally, I always say I accidentally fell into wall street. (laughs) I ended up, um, working as a vice president of, it was called like strategy and execution, but I was essentially the right hand strategic and executing partner of the division of C-suite executives, right? So from like the CEO of Chase Business Banking to the CEO of Chase, the CEO of Credit Card to, you know, the CEO of Asia, you know, and things like that. And so I had a lot of big responsibilities um, that, you know, ended up resulting in me developing upwards of $6 billion of products um, across different businesses during my time there. So very fantastic opportunity. I would say it was my first entree into the business world. And it was one that was really hard because as a scientist, um, there's a much different communication style. There's a much different way of working style. Um, There's an independent contributor model. Whereas as a you know, when you're when you go to Wall Street, it's a it's a team model. It's a did you empower the people model? Did you get the right buy-in model? Uh, did somebody like your tone model? <laughs> you know, and so um, that was that was a transition, and and then my transition from science, sorry, sorry, from Wall Street to tech was one that was catalyzed by personal experiences. Hmm. Now, if you feel comfortable, would you like to share what that personal experience was? Because I know that. You pivoted because of it. Yeah. So my parents sponsored a bus trip for kids to visit Hampton University every year. It was like the thing they'd love to do together. And this particular year, the bus ran off a straight road, flipped over and ejected both my parents out the front window. And my dad didn't survive that. And it was really interesting because I was, I remember exactly where I was standing when I got the phone call at JP Morgan Chase on the 32nd floor of 270 Park Avenue. And it, it changed my life completely in part because it was a highly traumatic experience, not just did my dad, um, you know, pass away on scene. Um, I, it's, I didn't know for hours if my mom was st- still alive. They wouldn't give me the information. I'm calling hospitals in Virginia trying to get this information. And then I had to nurse her back to health. She sustained a lot of injuries. And so going through that was um, a very, very tough time that I actually don't even wish on my worst enemy. Um, And it was one that made me realize that I had been focused on the wrong things in life. And what I mean by that is that, you know, during my era of my science days where I was getting the awards and I was highly decorated, that was real cute. And my parents would say, great job. My professors would say, great job. But during my era of my JP Morgan days, that was where social media became a thing. It was like, hey, you have a personal brand now. You got to put these things out there so people know who you're about. And what I did in response to that is I started to position my life online. I was like, oh, I'm top 30 this, I'm top 40 that. And people were like, oh my God, you were so... I mean, I was getting like all this validation from people I would never laugh in the same room with. And I think in that moment or in that phase in my life, I was I got caught up in the positioning of my life more than the living of my life. And so when that tragedy happened, it was just made even worse by the fact that I had neglected some of those key stabilizing relationships that mattered a lot to me and left me feeling extremely isolated and lonely. And, you know, my catalyst and transition to squad came because 
once I started to process what had happened to me, once I started to be able to just process the situation, I think there's a human response of not allowing too much trauma in your brain at one time just to make it digestible. Like I remember when the sheriff, when the state trooper called and told me that my dad died, I remember telling him, I'm sorry that he had the wrong call, the wrong number, because I just like, I, I my, my brain could not absorb it in the moment. Coming out of that, I realized I was far from the only person I felt loneliness and isolation because I had conflated consumption with connection. And so I said, all right, you know, this is something that I actually started to feel really passionate about. And I left JP Morgan to start squad because I felt like a few things were happening. One, I felt like social media was starting to kind of not, it wasn't just a connection tool. It was that personal branding tool, that consumption tool, that perfectionism tool. And I knew that given our excessive and obsessive behaviors as Americans, Americans, we were going to hit a crash and burn moment where that became too much. And we're kind of near there now. And the second thing was that, you know, I saw this shift in kind of lack of people actually living kind of like where I was. And, you know, so I, our philosophy with squad, I love to build squad is that we don't need more broadcast platforms. What we need are tools to make it easy for us to talk to our close friends every day. Because when I ask people, when's the last time you actually talk to your best friend? It's like, oh, a month, two months. You know what? I've been meaning to, but you know, the kids, you know, we had the vacation and they had the music recitals and then all the things. And, you know, um, with squad, you know, easy and fun way to talk to your closest friends every day. People say it's like the corner of their phone where they don't have to disarm or they don't have to screen because it's just who they want to talk to. You can only have up to 12 people, you know, because again, social media has made us think that we can have a thousand friends. Scientists and researchers clearly say that we can't even have more than 150 relationships, right? And so that was kind of my transition from JP Morgan and, and Wall Street era to tech, Yes. Well, I definitely want to talk more about um, social media and the impact and then your company squad. But just to go back a little bit about you preparing to leave. So I know that was obviously something that moment that changed everything. That's not something you could have planned for in advance. So once you did hear what happened, how did you start to navigate away from your corporate career? Because I'm assuming you were making very good money, benefits, right? Like the security and then the status that comes along with your position. So how did you start to say, you know, what were the steps to say, okay, I'm going to go out on my own? Like, were you already saving and good with money? So you had something there or did you have to start preparing financially and, and mentally to take this leap? Well, it wasn't very quick. I would tell you that um, in part because I just, it took me a, a year or two to even fully process what happened and what that really meant. Right. So it's kind of like, Hey, this happened. And the moment I'm very tactical, I'm like, you know, my mom lost all her memory. So I'm going down to North Carolina and she's like, I don't know if my bank account is with Bank of America or with, you know, Chase or with, you know, and so building up her life again was, it took a lot of, you know, energy and intentionality around my time and around like what I was able to process. But I would say that it was more of a, it wasn't an immediate thing. It was kind of an overtime thing. And, you know, that gave me time to figure out how I was feeling. But I hadn't been saving, um, you know, I wasn't kind of in a big saving thing because I had just gotten out of grad school recently and I was starting to pay on my student loans. And, you know, it took me a few years to figure out this was actually the path between like still maintaining really excellent performance at JP Morgan while making sure my mom was okay while processing it. It took me a few years of that to like really figure out what I wanted to do. And so, um, 
eventually my mom agreed to help me pay off my student loans. And that was kind of the freeing thing for me. I had $100,000 in debt and I didn't want to carry that. I knew like entrepreneurship is risky. And honestly, I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. Like that wasn't MIT is a huge entrepreneurship school. And when I was there, I did not go to the entrepreneurship lectures or seminars. We had all these great founders coming, like, you know, all these amazing CEOs. And I was like, whatever. <laughs> and so it wasn't, I, I, I went into entrepreneurship as a function of that was the path for me that was aligned with my purpose in that moment and still is, right? Um, and But, you know, so to go back to your decision around deciding to leave, it was also the fact that, um, you know, my, my dad and my, you know, my, my mom, very much risk averse, very much. You got a job, you know, when they, when they went to, when I went to JP Morgan, they were like, okay, you're going to max out your 401k every year. What's your 401k contribution rate? Like, let's, let's like get that together. And, and I did that, right. That was like the, the biggest thing um, for them. And then, you know, when I decided to leave, you know, I think my mom was just still processing a lot. But um, I can imagine that my dad would have, you know, had two opinions, right? One is like, Isaac, are you sure? You know, you have a really great job, you know, really stable, really great benefits. You know, you're going to wake up tomorrow and get a paycheck. Um, And then on the other side, my parents also very deeply trust me and my decisions. And so that was kind of the counterbalance. I don't think that they would have had the same like okay with it with every single one of my siblings but with me in particular I think that they generally um trusted me and so that was and then and then my mom she still jokes to this day she's like I, I still don't understand why you didn't get your PhD like you know maybe like maybe when you sell squat you can go back and get your PhD like and, and I'm like um no <laughs> Right. Like all the degrees, all those are not enough. Like you st- where's the next, what's the next level? <laughs> I need a PhD for her. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, it's good to just have that reference because I feel like a lot of times people hear a story similar to me when I've had the epiphany that I didn't want to stay in my corporate job. You know, I didn't quit right away. It took years for me to even confront and have the guts to make the change and then to start planning for it, you know, take calculated risk and save up so that I could do what I'm doing full time. So I think it's just important to highlight for people who may be in a certain stage in their life, they are aware that they should do something different, but it doesn't mean you have to jump and do it right now. Like There might be some some time it takes to just emotionally and mentally get into a space where you can start the plan and then start to do the work to, to execute it. Well, that's because we come from, you know, certain places where we have to make sure our plans are intact. There are people I know who just literally kind of hop around because they're trust fund babies and their parents are like seeding their bank accounts. That's a whole different situation, Right. But there, there's a lot of us who look like us where it's like, okay, I got to have my stuff together. I got a plan and I have to, you know, see it through. Mm. So one of the things you talk about too is that you left social media. So once you had this realization and you quit your job and you can correct the timeline for me if I'm off, but at what point did you walk away from social media? And then in that time, what did you realize about yourself? And then was that also you starting Squad and the companies? I didn't leave social media for a few years, actually. And it was just, you know, I wasn't necessarily super active on it. Well, I was was active enough. I think my issue with social media also became the fact that there was this notion of, okay, I've been positioning my life, right? And I see what that's done to, like, my loneliness. And then I kind of switched worlds. I went from, or went to being a tech entrepreneur where there's few, few and far between 
Black women who have raised millions of dollars in venture funding. So I went there and I was like, oh, I'm now getting this validation over here. So I might as well just stay here for a little bit because maybe it'll help my brand and maybe it'll attract investors and things like that. But the one thing I I will say, I got off social media because my college bestie who lives in Texas, she lives in Houston, she said, you know, Isa, if people looked at your social media, they would think that your life is perfect. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, my life is very far from perfect. And I like, um, this is, you know, it's being an entrepreneur, we're kind of embarking on that was when I really started to struggle with depression in a big way in my adulthood, right? And so she was like, you know, looking at your social media, people think you, and I, so I looked, I went back and I looked, I was like, wow. Yeah. I was like, I was capping. In fact, I remember this day and like, that was not it. And so I, I looked, I looked at it and I was like, I don't recognize myself and I don't recognize a person that I'm trying to step into. And there's a big disconnect here. So I deleted everything. I deleted, I, except I kept Twitter up, but I deleted Instagram. I had like tens of thousands of followers. I deleted LinkedIn. Even I deleted LinkedIn. I deleted um, just everything you could think of. And I lived off social media for a few years. Um, and then actually, uh, when my, I got back on right before my book started to be promoted. <laughs> so this is only if, like last year then. Yeah. I think that's interesting for a few reasons. So Journey to Launch, like the podcast, the brand, you know, t- talks all about financial independence and freedom and living a life that you truly want today, but setting yourself up for a great future. And one of the reasons why I was so connected to your work was because there are all these things that impact the way we live our lives or, you know, money. And we spend our money a lot sometimes, depending on who you are and where you are, to validate ourselves and to get validation from others. It's like wearing your wealth and or just outwardly projecting whatever is inside, right? And so social media has been a projection of that. It allows you not only to do that with your immediate, like who you see on the street or in your family and friends, but social media like magnifies it. And so I do think this is like an important topic when it comes to people really finding financial independence and freedom and living their real lives. Because part of that is like, what is your real life? What is the life you really want without the outward noise and without the need to validate yourselves through others, right? And so when you said that you like disconnected and you were building offline. So I find that very fascinating because there's like a couple schools of thought, like build in front of people because that helps to show vulnerability and or to get true fans or true people who will buy into who you are because they see it from the beginning. And then your approach is kind of like, or actually I'm going to do it offline so I can concentrate. And in the process, I know you maybe have gone through this, but like for me writing this book, I've been trying to go back and forth with how much do I share the process, you know, show your work, kind of that that style to kind of just show rawly what I'm doing versus, you know what, I can't actually balance showing in the moment and writing and doing the work, I need to maybe come back when I'm ready. So all that to say, how do you think about that? And any more thoughts? I think for me, you know, it boils down to a few things, but one is intentionality, right? Intentionality around the energy that's around me. And I, for me, where I was in my life, because I was really trying to just get more grounded and I couldn't get grounded with a bunch of people around me who I don't know, who I like, some of them I don't even like, making all these comments. The other thing about social media is that people feel free to 
comment on your life and comment on things and say crazy things to you. And that's not the energy they would bring if you were in front of them in a room. Right. And so I think, you know, I, I think that it's a very personal decision. I talk about this in the book. I tell people that like, you know, if you want to, you know, build in front of people or or be vulnerable, I do think that helps certain people say like, Hey, wow, I'm not the only one. Hey, by the way, I wasn't the only one struggling, right? Because part of our issue is that we don't share. You know, you know, for instance, like I think miscarriages has been discussed way more in the last five years than they ever have. When the reality is that most of my friends miscarried, most of my cousins miscarried, most women I know in on the planet have miscarried, right? And so um there is an element of when you share it does make a group of people or people feel a little bit less lonely. I just wasn't in that space at the moment because I also was kind of going through of trying to figure out who I was trying to figure out like, what was that disconnect? Why was I engaging in certain behaviors? Like when you talk, like someone came up to me in my book tour and they were like, you know, I feel like if I don't post it on social media, it didn't happen. And I'm like, that's a personal problem, you know, because there's been a lot of dope stuff I've done that I don't post on social media. But on the flip side, when I said I didn't recognize myself, you know, I remember I was at a puff house for, the pre Grammys party in 2020, like Q1, right before COVID happened. And I remember posting it on social. And then I was at like, I don't know, Alicia Keys birthday party. I posted that on social and people were like, Oh my God. Oh my God. But you know, me and Puff ain't friends. Me and Alicia, we not friends. Like why am I posting them? So it was a flex, right? It wasn't like genuine. And I was like, I am disgusted by my behavior because that like that's not they're, they're not what's bringing me joy no shade to them but like i just happen to be at their houses for the party right but i mean that's still a big deal not every not everyone gets invited to puff or alicia's house so <laughs> i i get that i get that but it, like when i looked at like my driver for posting that it was more on oh people would like like this or it's like it's a flex right and it feels good to flex And I wanted to, me getting off social media and me not building in front of people was me going through a process in life where I disconnected my addiction to validation from others. I needed to like cut that plug, you know, and I needed to get into a space where I learned how to validate myself. And I couldn't do that building in public. And again, some people can, some people can, I'm not knocking it. But for me and the place that I was in and what I knew I needed to do, it wasn't for me. I mean, it's impressive that you had the awareness to like realize that was happening for you and then co- like course correct. Because I know a lot of people who even have that awareness and then like, well, I'm still going to do it because it still feels good. And I think that's the issue is that how do you decide between, you know what? I can admit this is for my ego that I'm posting this and it's a flex and I don't care. Like I want to flex right now and I actually want, I want the validation from others, but is there a way to have both the duality of, yeah, you know, I'm human. And so there is a need for validation from others, but the, the other side of me is I really don't need it. I can, I can validate myself. Is it, is it possible to have both? I think it's, it's, it's deeply dependent on the person. You strike me as somebody who can have both. Right. But you know, there are a lot of people where that, that addiction to the validation is a slippery slope. Right. Because then you post that next thing and it doesn't get as many likes, doesn't get as much engagement. And you're like, wait, what What did I do wrong? You know, you're internalizing that. There are people who you could ask me about who I'd be like, no, they can't do both. But somebody like you, I think you can do both. Um, but I think that, you know, bigger than you is the whole notion of con- contextualizing what we're seeing on social media. What we're seeing on social media is generally people's perfected highlight reels. And where the toxicity comes in is that we are comparing 
our whole lives that are messy, that have these ups and downs and drags to someone's perfected highlight reel. And so I don't mind me. I'll look at your thing. I'll be like, oh, okay. Just with the flex. I don't mind that you flex because here's also, I know that you're human and I know that you have a whole multitude of experiences that I don't know. Right. And so, and I'm not going to get caught up in comparing my messiness to your flex. And I think that the more people need to kind of adapt that mindset because 90% of social media users are lurkers. They just scroll. They don't post, they don't engage. Right. And so, um, you know, people are consuming that and it's kind of like, you know, I think that you can, but also I think bigger, we have to just understand how to put into context what we're consuming. Yeah, so you just said a stat and um, 90% of social media users are lurkers. So I, I don't, I forgot who's the originator of this quote, but you know, so many people are in the stadium or watching the fight. They're not doing the work, but they have like the safety and security of just watching. And so some of us who are, th- are doing the work more, it's a big deal because so many people have talents or things to say and brilliance that they're not exposing and it just doesn't need to also happen just on social media but that said about 90 percent of people are lurkers it's an interesting one but i wonder from your research and i'm pretty sure your book has amazing research based on your background is there something else that was even surprising to you that you found or that you if some people knew more of they'd be like oh wow like that's something is <laughs> interesting to to note yeah just kind of the scale that we try to live our lives in right now i think is a function of the way that we engage with the internet what i mean by that is what is anytime you log onto a new social platform what's the first thing they do connect they want to connect your friends or find the people that you know right they want to connect your friends and they want you to get as many friends as possible because like Facebook, it was seven friends in 10 days. And, you know, Snap, it's like, add this person, add that person, add this person, add that person, right? Because what is it also, it's that your friendship or the number of people you're connected to is just social currency. Another behavior that we see on on Instagram is that people always want to follow fewer people than are following them, right? Because it's like, hey, I'm more important. I have people who are interested in me, but I'm not interested in them. Right. That that's, it's, you I see the behavior. I actually see people kind of adjusting their follower account to, to fit this. Right. So the one thing that I'll say that researchers show Dr. Huang, I forget which university he was from, but it's, it's in the book. He did the study that showed, you know, happiness score and a happiness index and the happiness score. The people that were the happiest were those with less than 10 friends. But what happens on LinkedIn, you got to get to that 500 plus connections, right? So you can fall into the, hey, I'm relevant professionally. On Twitter, you're trying to get as many followers. On Instagram, you're trying to get as many followers as people. I mean, but like fewer than five, I'm sorry, fewer than 10 uh, connections and then fewer than 100 people who you're connected to online. Those people are the happiest. And people like you and I are connected to way more than 100 people online. Right. But but they a lot of people see that as aspiration. I have friends with like millions of followers on Instagram and they generally are my loneliest friends. And so I think that, you know, the one thing that I want people to take away is that you don't have to have these big numbers to have a meaningful life, you know, because real friendship and joy is the flex. I had such an amazing weekend with like my friends in Brooklyn and I didn't post any of them on social media. Like, but I was so happy and I was so just like grounded and, you know, my friends were pouring into me and I was pouring into them and it was beautiful. And I got back 
you know, and I happened to check Instagram on Monday and I was like, oh, none of that's there, you know? And so joy is the flex, not the numbers. Mm, I love that. I love that. As you're now growing or, or building something outside of what the current social media platforms are, talk a little bit about what you've learned or what you're doing differently with Squad that makes it different from these other social media platforms. You know, the one thing, the three adjectives that we like to use to describe Squad are private, fun, and easy. And I used to say that the phone, once upon a time, was an intimate thing, right? Like, you you have to know somebody to have their phone number. Now, you can get a right phone number, you know? And then you got all the auto warranty people calling you, you know, when you don't have no car. You got all the people, Bernie Sanders and all his friends are texting you for donations along with everybody else. And so there's so, we're inundated with so much. And then what what do we do? We escape to social media and we just consume and sc- consume to like avoid, you know, real stuff. And so a lot of users have described Squad as that, that corner of their phone that feels fun and safe. And, you know, what we're doing that's different, you know, from a, you know, feature level perspective, Squad is voice only. We have asynchronous messages. We have squat freestyles, which are your daily updates. We have daily polls that are just kind of fun, you know, A or B questions of the day. And we also have squat line, which is a new take on the phone call experience. So it's an interactive phone call where you actually you want to, if I say, I want to call you, Jamila, there's a pop-up that says, what do you want to talk about? <laughs> you know, and I can put up 30 characters, right? And when I call you, it'll say, Isa colon podcast today. Isa Colin podcast today. And then when we're talking, you know, I can like react to you and you can react to me with these floating emojis. And then you get kind of a summary of the vibe of the call when you're done. And so, you know, our philosophy is that our biggest dopamine hits and our most sustained dopamine hits comes from going deep with a handful of people and not going broad. You know, there are too many broadcast platforms and too much trying to impress people on the internet who you'll never meet, who you'll never laugh in the same room with. And not enough of going deep with a handful of people around you because that's that's where the joy resides. You know, that 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 meme like where the money reside, where the money reside, this where the joy resides. But the one thing I'll say is that some people say, Oh, well, maybe it's like I can I it's like group message or you know, a group WhatsApp. And I'm like, actually no, because squad is the only place where it's dynamically built around you. So if I say Group messages tend to have lurkers too, because not everyone has the same relationship with everyone in the group message. And the person who created it has strong relationships across, but all the participants generally don't. So if I say, hey, Jamila, do you Jamila, do you want to be my squad? You say, yes, where's your squad? I say, hey, yo, Barack Obama, you want to be my squad? He says, yeah, where, where's your squads? But if you and Barack don't know each other, you will never see each other on the platform or never see like what I'm doing, Barack, or what I'm doing with you, et cetera. Right. And so, you know, our philosophy, too, is that, you know, there's a world where participation matters, like 90 percent of people online don't engage. All they do is consume. They're still human. They still need connection, belonging, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Right. They participate in this stuff, but they need an easier tool to do so. And it's really hard in text messages. It's really hard in group chats. And what we find is that a lot of people don't even know how to start the conversation. Like, hey, girl, I haven't talked to you in a long time. Tell me how's it going? How you living? How you vibing? 
like a lot of people making that first step of checking in with friends is really hard for people. And that that's what Squad does. It provides a world where it's just easy for you to do that. There are a ton of prompts in different places, like in the voice messages, in the freestyles, et cetera, where it'll give you say, yo, tell, tell this friend this thing. Like what's, what's the good, what's, what's the vibe? And then the, the conversation continues from there. That's how I would describe it. You know, I think the next wave of social is going to be on deepening as opposed to, to big broadcasts. Mm. You talked about, obviously, the connection. And one thing that it seems about you is that you've been able to foster really strong mentors and people and just friendships in your life. I was kind of watching a little bit of your book rollout, um, the tour, and it's like influential, right? Like, so people that you look at that probably have status, right, that you've connected with and you know, versus just like deep friends that they didn't necessarily have to have millions of followers. But how did you go about fostering those connections and maintaining them as you went through the different pockets of your career and life? And what advice do you have for other people who don't have connections like that and they want to build them um, and or looking for mentors who are more established? What can you, what are some tips you can give for that? Two, two tips. One is to be intentional and thoughtful about how you approach these people, what you want from them, et cetera. And then the second is to just be yourself. I remember sitting down with Carla Harris, who is a, a big force on Wall Street. And it was like maybe 10 years ago, my first review at JP Morgan, it was like very mid. And I was talking to her about it. I was like, what's going on here? And she was like, yeah, they just don't like you. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. I can take it. I can take it. Like, tell me why they don't like me. And she was like, what I'm gathering from this review, Isa, is that you're not being yourself. And she was like, you're trying to be somebody that you're not. And they peep that. So if you just, she was like, if anyone gives you permission, I'm giving you permission to just go, go back to JP Morgan and just commit to being yourself. She's like, when you're yourself, people love you. I joked with her. I was like, so if I get fired for being myself, I come over to Morgan Stanley, you know, and she was like, you'll be fine. (laughs) So um, I started really leaning heavily into being myself. I stopped pretending to love to play golf. I stopped pretending to enjoy the NFL by studying their recaps on Sunday nights. I stopped pretending like my favorite rapper is not Kendrick Lamar. You know, and so I think that a lot, especially a lot of people who look like us, we are we're taught to assimilate even by our parents. And to me, that didn't really get me anywhere. What got me somewhere is just like leaning into who I was. And then, for example, when there were people that I really wanted to like connect with and I was like, oh, I think they could be a good mentor. I never asked them straight up, like, yo, keep my mentor. You know, that, that wasn't the first question. It was very much like I would read about what they've said online. I would look at their interviews. If they have books, I would read their books. And I would understand what's the connection to where they can add value to me and why they would be interested in connecting with me. And when I would send them, like some of them I sent cold emails or, you know, cold notes to. I would send, I would send them notes and I would say, hey, my name is Isa. This is who I am you know, I'm really interested in your feedback or perspective on these things. And this is why I think you can help me. And I would love, you know, just like a 30 minute coffee or 15 minutes. And, you know, people be asking for like an hour and that's crazy. Like on the first, on the first meet, but, you know, I think I was, I was very thoughtful. And one of the things actually Carla told me this as well. She said, Isa, you're one of the only people that, you know, after I give you the feedback, you then come back and say, okay, this is how the feedback turned out. This was the outcome. And she said, and then you also implement feedback very well. 
And so I think that people like getting the the first meeting is actually not as hard as getting the second, third, fourth, fifth, et cetera. And so I think I was very intentional and I've gotten feedback on that with how I approached whoever it was I wanted to connect with. And I just gave Carla as an example. And then how I maintain that, you know, people, people want to pour into you and they, people want to know that their time is valuable. So if I loop back and I say, Hey, by the way, I wanted to let you know, I took this advice. This is how I did this. And by the way, I went out and I raised $5 million for the company. And now the company's value here, they feel good. And, and so I think that, you know, there's a lot of relationship management and intentionality in the approach to someone who can mentor you. And as far as, you know, my, my friends, I think that's kind of similar, kind of different. Another is being myself. But one of the things I realized about my friends is that I need empathy. Like if someone doesn't like express or have, you know, empathetic behaviors, it's really, really hard for me to connect with them. You know, my oldest friends are, we've been friends for 20 years now. And that came with like a lot of ups and downs and lefts and rights and things like that. But, you know, we were able to see the friendship through because we were aligned. We were committed. We loved each other. I think it's important to date your friends. I said that online once and people were like, no, I don't think you should get involved with your friends. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not talking like that. I mean, like if my friend is having a bad day, I'll send them flowers or, you know, another friend, I'll like go take them out to dinner if they're having a bad day. And, you know, I've had my friends, two of my friends in New York, they kidnapped me for my birthday because I was like, I'm not doing anything. And they're like, yes, you are. Share your, share your location. We're in an Uber right now. You know what I'm saying? And I, I investing in the love and the connection components of friendship is, is I think, really important. It is. I mean, it's a form of wealth. It's very important. I mean, community, um, you know, back in the day was community is how we were able to come to this country, especially as immigrants. You know, like we stayed with family members at first or, you know, when you have kids and you, you need help because you're working and you have someone you can call to help watch them. Like all this is a form of wealth. And, you know, so it in order to foster these relationships and to grow them, it's important. One thing that just... um. You said empathy was really important in your friends. And then you mentioned that you wish just a little bit, you had more of that growing up from your parents. And I was like, oh, that was like a little light bulb moment for me because then, you know, I thought about what what I value in my friendships and what maybe I either saw that was important growing up or I didn't have growing up and why it was so important, even in choosing my spouse. Like I was like, I need loyalty. I need someone who's dependable. Right. And I just think it's important to have this awareness about yourself, because when you're going out into the world and you are talking to people, making those connections for job interviews or just for friendships, for mentorship, creating businesses, like all of this is relationship driven and to know yourself. So you know how, you know, what may trigger you or what is a focal point or strong quality about yourself is very important. Like, I feel like people who know themselves in this way are better able to manage and grow the deep relationships that help them or that you can help others. No, a hundred percent. Like it's, and I think I probably made that connection. And honestly, I think that I had to learn how to be empathetic because I feel like it was something that I didn't have for a while. And I didn't show up in friendships the way, in the way in which I should. I didn't show up in relationships in the way in which I should because I lacked empathy. Right. And so I had to fix that first. And then I was like, yo, this is this is what I like. This is what I need, you know. And so definitely a journey. Definitely like that investing in yourself is is hard because you look in the mirror and the thing that you see is like, that's not the person I want to be. And it's really mentally challenging to say, OK, I realize that, but I'm devoted to getting to the place that I want to be. Mm-hmm. 
I want to talk a bit about your skydiving because I am just in awe <laughs> with it. You know, I always joke around before I had kids. I was like, I would try it. And now I feel like, oh, a little too risky for me. But um, maybe it's just my own limiting belief. But I would love to understand like your first experience, what made you do it. And then not just do it one time and just occasionally, but become certified. I believe you're, you're certified and you do it. I don't know how often you go, but I'd love to hear more about your skydiving journey. I had always wanted to try it. I remember, um, you know, I used to go back to the islands a bit as a kid. I remember telling my dad, I was like, it was, I was probably like 15. I was like, yo, I really want to go do this. He was like, stop, stop playing with me. Like, (laughs) so I was like, fine, whatever. Cause when I turn 18, y'all can't tell me what to do. (laughs) And I, I always wanted to try it, but then I wasn't like adamant about making it happen. Anyways, a few years ago, I, did it. The experience was just for me, life-changing. Um, I did it in the country of Mauritius, which is about a thousand miles East of Madagascar in the middle of the Indian ocean. just a little dot on the map. And I, I had called, they had canceled me multiple days because of the winds and because of the clouds. And I was like, am I going to go today? Am I going to go today? It was a Wednesday. And they were like, okay, come on. And I remember jumping out. I didn't jump out the plane because this plane was so small. It was like a drug cartel, El Chapo type of like plane. Like you just, you couldn't even stand in the door. You just kind of had to roll out, you know? <laughs> Whereas like the planes I fly here, like I, I can jump out, I can flip out. And so I remember the first second I was like, wow, this is kind of cool. And then getting down, deploying my par- deploying him deploying the parachute because you do a tandem when you first skydive um, attached to somebody. And I remember feeling like I had never felt before. That moment brought me to a level of meditation, peace, and serenity that I had never felt before. So I remember feeling like that was that was my addiction. And so I came back to the States and I told my, it was my sister's bridal shower. And I said, hey, you guys all should come. And including my 66-year-old mom. Come and skydive with you? Like actually jump out? Yeah. Yeah. I recruited all the Black people I could that weekend. And my mom came. She's afraid of heights. She's 66 years old. Everybody loved it. My mom is still asking me, when are we going back? When are we going back? And so I was like, also, I did it again. And I was like, but this whole tandem thing is cramping my style. So I, I went ahead and went to skydiving school to get my license. And now I jump two to four weekends a month. Two to four weekends a month. Wow. Okay. So now I need to let go of the excuse that now, because I have kids, I, <laughs> I can't jump since your mom did it. But um, in general, are there any similarities or things because from the outside, right? For people who would never do that or like, or consider it or, or just will would want to, but just wouldn't because they're scared. How do you relay that to like different journeys within like one's life, right? Whether that's like quitting a job, um, starting a business, just doing anything. I feel like there, there's probably something there through line um, that you realize or can see. I think the through line was doubling down on my joy I think especially as an immigrant child, as, you know, especially a Black person in America, we're always trying to follow somebody's playbook. And we're, we're never investing enough. Rarely are we investing enough to actually tap into and find what those joy centers are for us. I had come on a path where I was like, I want 
to feel joyful. I want to tap into those joy centers and I'm going to need to experiment in order to do so. And for me, skydiving came out as one of the activities that was top of the top of the line for me. Because when I skydive, by the way, there's, there's a few things I realized happen. Nothing else matters, right? I look, I jump off the plane at 14,000 feet. I'm flying, I'm having fun. I look down at the ground and I'm like, perspective. Also, people are like, oh my God, my stomach, my stomach, it just feels like I just, you know, it feels like a roller coaster. And I'm like, you actually feel more like a feather. Have you seen a feather like fall? That's what, that's more of what it feels like, actually. And so I think for me, it was just doubling down on my joy centers and what brings me joy and committing to living a life full of joy and not living a life that was characterized by burnout, characterized by stress, characterized by trying to impress a bunch of people that I don't really care to impress. And I think that, you know, that skydiving journey, that joy center was also probably coupled by me not caring as much about what people thought of me and not caring as much about, like, I was just like, I'm committed to my joy because I have one life to live. And this is, this is part of it for me. And I feel like enough of us don't really experiment with what our joy centers are. Right. And also not letting other people's fears, like just someone else can be fearful of that, but you don't have to take that on or adopt whatever that is. I mean, you, 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 you strike me as a super smart person. I also looked you up to, and it's the stats. Skydiving is actually quite statistically safe and it's actually safer than driving a car up the FDR in New York City. I do that often. So <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying the data is like very clear. It's, it's the industry, um, the USPA, which is like our NFL, NBA type of entity. They've done a lot. We're also regulated by the FAA. They've done a lot to make sure that the sport is is safe. So yeah, we can drive on down to Skydive Cross Keys or Skydive the Ranch and make that happen. Okay, well, you heard it here first. If you see me jump out of a plane, it's because of <laughs> Isa. I'll be doing it with her, honestly. That's the only way I'm doing it. But okay, Isa, this was amazing. Um, please tell everyone what they can find out more about your company, your book, and yourself. Yeah, so you can visit our website for the company. It's with your squad. And so it's in the handles everywhere is at with your squad. So download the app on iOS and Android. We're now on Android. Woo! And then for me, you know, you can find me on social at Isa D. Watson. Yeah. Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, even though I'm not really on there, but yeah. Right. All the places. Okay. All right. Well, we will link all that in the episode show notes. Thanks so much again, Isa, for coming on the show. Don't forget, you can get the episode show notes for this episode by going to journeytolaunch.com or click the description of wherever you're listening to this. And you can still grab your jumpstart guide for free to help you on your journey to financial freedom by going to journeytolaunch.com slash jumpstart. If you want to support me and the podcast and love the free content and information that you get here, here are four ways that you can support me and the show. One, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast wherever you listen, whether that's Apple Podcasts, that purple app on your phone, your Android device, YouTube, Spotify, wherever it is that you happen to listen, just subscribe so you are not missing an episode. And if you're happening to listen to this in Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe there. I appreciate and read every single review. Number two, follow me on my social media accounts. I'm at Journey to Launch on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I love, love, love interacting with journeyers there. 
Three, support and check out the sponsors of this show if you hear something that interests you. Sponsors are the main ways we keep the podcast lights on here, so show them some love for supporting your girl. Four, and last but not least, share this episode, this podcast, with a friend or family member or coworker so that we can spread the message of Journey to Launch. All right, that's it. Until next week, keep on journeying, journeyers. Journeyers.